Welcome to Creating Synergy, where we explore what it takes to transform. We are powered by Synergy IQ. Our mission is to help leaders create world-class businesses where people are safe, valued, inspired, and fulfilled. We can only do this with our amazing community. So thank you for listening. Hey there, Synergizers, and welcome back to another episode of the Creating Synergy podcast. My name is Daniel Franco, and today we have a remarkable human being on the show, Fiona Blakely. Fiona is the People Executive Lead at Oz Minerals, and after joining the Forward Thinking Mining Company in February 2019, she believes that the focus on corporate culture can no longer be seen as an optional extra. For the past two decades, Fiona has worked with organisations to help build cultures that create value for all stakeholders. With a master in org psych and MBA and 20 years multinational corporate HR experience, Fiona is passionate about evidence-based practices to help leaders build cultures they need. It's through her experience she knows for certain that in toxic cultures, engagement drops, turnover increases, and market values decrease. Fiona began her career with Shell in the UK before establishing the HR function for Bosch and Lom UK's manufacturing division. After moving to Australia to complete her MBA, Fiona joined Lion Nathan as HR Director Wines and Spirits, followed by a series of roles in corporate strategy and capability. Across all of these roles, Fiona's passion has been the development of high-performing cultures through the application of evidence-based practices. Most recently, Fiona ran her own leadership development consultancy, supporting leaders to drive culture change through a focus of their mindsets and behaviours. Fiona is a fellow of the Australian HR Institute, an accredited coach with International Coaching Federation and a member of the Adaptive Leadership Institute Advisory Committee. In this episode, Fiona and I touch on her journey from backpacking all around the world to unpacking her experiences through her corporate career. We deep dive into the systems, symbols, behaviours and mindset required for high-performing cultures. We also spent a lot of time talking about the innovative ways that Oz Minerals manage their workforce, inclusion and diversity, and how they're positioning themselves for the future. If you love the episode, which I'm sure you will, be sure to hit subscribe button and check us out at synergyiq.com.au and SynergyIQ on all the media outlets. Cheers. So welcome back to the Creating Synergy podcast. My name is Daniel Franco, your host, and today we have the amazing Fiona Blakely on the on the show. Thank you, Fiona, for joining us. Thank you for that introduction. <laughs> so, Chief People Officer at Oz Minerals. As of today, People Executive Lead. People Executive Lead. Yeah. Okay, is there a difference in, there in is, the role? There is. We're, just, uh, we're ditching the chief ah, part of our excellent. journey around trying to really think about all the symbols around the culture, so we felt chief seemed a bit, uh, bit traditional, a bit, um, bit hierarchical. So as of today, all the executive team are uh, executive leads for their area. Executive leads. Yep. See that already? He's talking about the way Oz <laughs> Minerals is thinking and thinking about the the future of of their work. So uh, congratulations on that change. It's actually quite quite exciting and quite innovative. Yeah. Thank you. Look, before we deep dive into your world at Oz Minerals and everything that you're doing there, I'd really love to learn and unpack a little bit about your history, yep. about where you came from today, why we've invited you on this podcast and everything like that. You've, you've got a good story. There are a lot of people in the industry who know your name and, and know the work that you've done. You've worked as a consultant previously in your own life, running your own business. So uh, 
yeah, if, if we could just, who is Fiona and how did you get to where you are today? Oh, I'd love to say it was um, a planned strategic, but actually it wasn't. I say it's a series of um, accidental great things that happened mm-hmm. along the ways. Who am I? Um, well, a bit of an obvious one. I'm Irish, um, yes. not, not, a, not a local, although yeah. I've been here about 20 years. In, yeah. um, so I'm a mom. I've got two boys, 16 and 14. Um, and I started life as um, actually doing business in German. Um, at university and fell into psychology as sort of as a side subject, fell in love with it, uh, switched over, took psychology. And now that was really the beginning of kind of sort of a journey through, um, mostly through corporate world. Um, Started off with Shell, sort of in the graduate program. Um, And then after about 10 years. In the UK? In the UK, yep. Yep, started in the UK. And I was was at Aberdeen actually on the oil fields. Ah, Spent my first years. Yeah, flying out to Brent Alpha and helicopters and uh, and then down in, in head office. In London with their with them Shell International for a little while, yeah. um, and then with an American company Bausch and Lomb, okay. I went to Scotland and set up their um, their kind of people function for their um, manufacturing division um, in so. Scotland. And uh, yeah, and then after about ten years, decided to go adventuring. Yeah, did you did you meet someone? Adventuring, or did you? Were you with your husband over overseas? Yeah, or? yep, yep. College sweetheart. College sweetheart. Yeah, yep. So, so you both decided to take yeah, on the world. Yeah, well, we got married, and I think we just sort of thought, oh, what's the next adventure? With all the excitement mm. of getting married, and all our friends were sort of getting married, and we sat back and we were like, no, I'm not quite ready for the whole house kids, and yep. what, I don't know. We just thought, hadn't it? We'd gone straight from from college into work into mm-hmm. careers, mm. um, and we just had this moment um, over in Breckenridge actually snowboarding. And we were like, imagine if we were just something really different. And so we went back and we quit and we actually became lifties. Oh, okay. wow. Yeah, we went back and applied. Yeah. We became lift operators with, on, with on the, at the snow. Yeah, at the yeah. ski field. Yeah, we yeah. packed everything up, in our, um, everything up in our apartment and we didn't own our apartment. We, we rented it. So um, packed all our stuff up, put it into my brother's garage, sold our car, put the money into an account and we flew out to um, America. We became lifties with Vail Resorts for six months, which was amazing. Yeah. I think we were the oldest lifties because we were like 29, <laughs> ripe old age. And that was amazing. And then after that, we um, used the money to buy an old car and we just did the whole um, from Canada to, Al- to from Alaska down to um, uh, Mexico. We just hiked. We just camped and hiked our whole way down. So just had the most amazing year. And we ran out of money in Australia <laughs> 20 yeah, years so ago. Hence the reason you started working again. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah I think you've, You've just earmarked what's on a lot of people's bucket lists and just selling everything up, packing up and going and exploring the world. Yeah. Obviously, it's hard to do at the moment, but uh, it is. It, it is. would have been an amazing experience. You would have met some amazing people. Oh, just incredible. Just just the people and just to get a chance to step back a little bit, you know, and just do something different mm. um, and do it, uh, you know, and, and just not be kind of stuck on one pathway. Yeah. And the other thing I think it made us realize is the amount of people that said afterwards, oh, that was so brave. You know, I'd love to have done something. I thought, well, I don't think we ever thought it was brave at the time. We didn't really. And it's easy when you're in your 20s and you haven't got kids yeah, yeah. and you haven't got all the other things that come with kind of later in life with responsibilities. But um, at the time, it was just it was more, it was something that was there and we had an opportunity and we took it. And it opened to then, I think of all the things we've done since then, all the doors, it all came from some of those decisions. So yeah. I have, a, I have a real philosophy of if a door opens, you take, you step in yeah. and don't worry about what's on the other side. Just yeah. step in, take whatever adventure or opportunity is right in front of you and just trust that in doing that, the next thing usually emerges, which, as I said, I'd love to say my career was a, a structured strategic plan that yeah. I put together, but it's not. It's been a whole series of those sort of doors that have Step into the discomfort. Yeah. 
I often uh, I often look at life as a sliding doors moment in that sense. I, you know the old saying, you know when you walk into a supermarket and as you're walking towards the doors at, at you know, your local Coles or wherever it might be, the doors are shut, right? And you'll keep walking, you keep walking. If you've never seen these sliding doors before, you don't know what's going on. The doors are shut, doors are shut. Then all of a sudden as you get closer, the doors open, right? And that's your opportunity to step through. Yeah. I really... I've always taken that on as a philosophy is it's an, you've got to kind of push yourself to the point where, hang on, what, what's going on here? You're feeling uncomfortable and then you step through. And yeah. So uh, I really like your analogy, your, your world in, in, in that you did that exactly, which is, which is amazing. So what prompted to move from UK to Australia? Oh, I, honestly, itchy feet. Yeah. I think we'd been sort of 10 years in the UK post-college and we'd been working and we, if I'm really honest, I think it was three years where summer lasted a week um, and we were kind of done. <laughs> we were done. That's enough. <laughs> we yeah, had enough. I need some sun. And we'd actually had this amazing, um, after our wedding, um, we had gone out with all our friends to Breckenridge and we'd had this incredible 10 days snowboarding and yeah. being in America. And we came back and it was really, really wet. I always remember that day. It was such a wet July day and we were a little bit, maybe had a couple of extra vodka Red Bulls the night before. <laughs> and we were sitting around. I was just on the website browsing and just going back to Breckenridge and looking at pictures and kind of thinking, oh God, I wish I was anywhere but, you know, rainy yeah, Scotland yeah. right now. And I saw this um, button for employment and I just thought it was really funny and I explored it and I went back and touched my, my husband. I was like, I was like, imagine if we were like just to not be here, like and go to something really weird, like go work at a ski resort. And on that moment, we, we put an application in. And go. just spur of the moment, and we put an application to, uh, into uh, work at Breckenridge. And then about three or four weeks later, out of the blue, I got a phone call. And I happened to be at home and uh, from work, and I took the phone call, and I was interviewed, not for the job, over the phone, at the ripe old rate of $10. Actually, I started at $9.75 an hour. Oh, wow. And I was a HR manager <laughs> with time, <laughs> with passion and love. And uh, my husband came home from work, and I said, I've just been offered a job you know, as a lifty in Breckenridge. And he was like, what? I was like, do you remember we put those applications in? Yeah, wow. And he said, well, okay. So he rang up and he said, well, you just offered my wife a job. What about me? And so they interviewed him. And and then next thing we were like, all right, okay, we've just been offered jobs. So we thought about it. And then we went in on the Monday morning and handed our notice in. Brilliant. Yeah. So, uh, so, So then as part of that, we thought, well, if we're going to do that, let's do something. Let's keep going. Yeah. And so before we left the UK, we decided um, where would we like to go and, ex- and, and live and explore. We looked places around the world. We thought Australia seemed pretty interesting. We'd never been here, uh, but we had an image of what it would mm. be. And so we put an application in for visas um, in London with a, with a, uh, a migration agent yeah. and then headed out to America and thought, well, well, see what happens. And then the visas came through while we were en route. So we oh, actually really? collected the visas in Vancouver oh, excellent. on our travels. And if we hadn't got them, we probably would have just have headed back. Headed to back. The, yeah, or maybe stayed. Did you get a job here? No, first? nothing. No, just nothing. flew over. No. And, and landed we in? Landed, at, landed into Sydney, um, Sydney 10 days before September 11th. Oh, wow. So I always remember we had a little bed sit in mm-hmm. the uh, in the salubrious uh, um uh, suburb of King's Cross. So anybody from Sydney will know it would be smiling. Yeah. Um, they tried to tell us it was Darlinghurst, but actually it wasn't. It was a <laughs> rat-infested little bedsit in, in King's Cross. And we were 10 days and we, we arrived and we were pretty getting pretty low on funds at this stage. We'd, we'd exhausted most of our money. Mm. Um, and so we thought, great, okay, we'll start working. And we started, you know, ringing up headhunters. And, uh, and then obviously September 11th hit and they effectively said, you might as well go traveling for six months as yeah. nobody's going to be employing. And um, 
we thought, oh, well, we've got any money left to go traveling. Oh, no. So we had enough money to get us through to December. And literally five days before we were out of money and we'd kept enough to get a plane home, uh, my husband got a job with JP Morgan. Oh, there you Through go. networks and contacts yeah. back from the UK. And uh, that was enough to... Um, Spark the fire again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we went home, basically packed everything up, said goodbye to the family and uh, arrived back into, into Sydney. A few weeks later, with, uh, with so my husband had a job and I went back to college to do my MBA. Yeah, correct. I decided at that stage, yeah, I was mm. uh, not quite ready to to give up new things. So, MBA, what what drew the interest? You've you've obviously done some work in psychology as a you know as your graduate certificate and whatnot. And then you've decided business is that the world that you wanted to really master in and grow up the and sort of move up the chain. No, it wasn't really about anything about the chain I mean I did I had a master's in occupational psychology so mm-hmm. I'd been a I'd always been sort of then in corporate yeah, world and I'd yeah. been with Shell International and yeah. I was with Bausch and Alarm so I'd been always in business and I think part of me was always it was I had a really good grasp of obviously the, the you know the psychology of people in the business environment yeah. through the occupational psychology yeah. but I found business fascinating as well uh, and I thought that'd be really interesting to go back and actually do an MBA because I'm always going to be in business yeah. in some shape or form yeah. um, at that time I thought so um, I thought it'd be really interesting to go back and uh, do an MBA and again sliding doors moments I met an amazing I met the sales director of Lyon Nathan oh, um, was one of my one of my um, um, friends at university he was doing the MBA as well and yeah. we became like syndicate group members yeah, and yeah, then yeah. friends and uh, towards the end of the MBA Lyon Nathan um, was um, expanding out of beer and into wine and just bought a whole series of wineries and had created a new division called uh, Wines and Spirits and mm-hmm. was looking for a HR director. Um, yeah. And I thought, oh, okay. So I had the kind of MBA background, yep. but then I also had the, had the, like the um, masters. yeah, had the, uh, the, the the HR background as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a good fit. So I joined yeah. Lyon Nathan straight out of the MBA. And um, what was that like, your first role within Australia, in the Australian business? Was it different to everything else you'd done oh, before? It was, was fascinating it? because I think the reason I'd gone back to the MBA is I had done, you know, talked to a couple of companies and I arrived in Australia and I started getting a bit worried because everybody I spoke to, whilst they were big companies, they really were offshoots. of in, mm. They were like, mm. off, they were international kind of operations. So the ability to actually drive change, affect culture, you know, be strategically involved was quite limited. And yeah. I was thinking, oh, I didn't realise Australia was so kind of... I, you know, I thought, smaller fry. Yeah, almost, yeah. And, I, and I said so. A lot of companies, but an awful lot. All the decisions were made elsewhere. And so mm. when I um, I met Bob Barber, who was the HR director at the time, and Gordon Cairns at uh, Adeline Nathan, I was and I got to know them and chatting to them, and I thought, wow, this is a company that's it's you know, I mean, in, in kind of companies I'd come from, which were like hundred thousand people and mm. thirty thousand. It was small. It was three thousand people mm. at the time. Mm. But it was a small company that thought really big. Mm-hmm. Um, they really did. They, they were out constantly looking at best practice thinkers, particularly in the world of, of people and culture. And also they were, you know, because they were effectively an ASX listed company, totally in control, you know, yeah. of their own destiny. So yeah. I thought that was fascinating to come and so I think I was really lucky. I'm so glad I didn't jump and I waited yeah. and found the right company because yeah. I had 14 years then with Lion Nathan and I was just fantastic. I learned so much. The um, the learning curve would have been huge, and it, it, would you say that that was the propel, like that propelled you to where you are today? The, the learnings and the growth that you in, Abs- in those positions. Yeah, absolutely. I think because with I mean, Shell was an amazing experience as well. Um, what I had the chance to do with and it's now Line uh, with Line was really get involved in thinking about um, almost going back a little bit to the psychology roots. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a 
philosophy at Lion at the time of always having a strategy team. And that strategy team was non-operational. And they got to actually, you know, go out and look at best practice thinking around the, the world and bring it back into, into the company. And so I had a time both working in the team and leading that team as well as being operational, you know, in terms of the business units as well. So um, I got a chance to be exposed to pretty much all the leading thinkers. It was like kind of a little bit of a perfect sweet spot because yeah. you got to explore and play in that kind of research space, yeah. but then apply that research. Yeah. So, and it, it, got, it really helped me kind of, I think, solidify that thing about I call it applied research. So the research is really interesting. And I do love that back, that kind of, in, that kind of academic sort of piece to it. But if you can't apply it, you know, to people, in a really practical way that makes a difference and changes something for the better, then it's just, it's interesting, but not particularly useful. So yeah, 100%. yeah, so really good grounding in that space. In the, in that role, what I'm hearing is that there's a real opportunity for executive team and senior leaders within businesses to go out and research what is practice. How do you, how did you uh, manage the, I guess the opportunity of, of researching and looking into what the rest of the world is doing from a best practice point of view to managing the everyday, you yep. know, you often hear, I just, I don't have time. I'm yeah. too busy. So was that something that you were empowered to do or, or is that how you set your day? So look, if I'm going to be the best I am in this job, I need to do it this way. Well, I think we, so if you think about um, the things that drive culture, you've got system symbols sort of and behaviours. So that was a real system piece. So mm-hmm. in line, we had a very purposeful decision to have a team that had no operational responsibility mm. so that team was really tasked with being the thinkers yeah. um, and going out and looking at the research and then bringing it back and then partnering with the operational teams to to turn that into something that was operational so that really helped because i think that's a perennial problem for anybody oh, which yeah. is the day-to-day can take over so how do you separate out from the day-to-day and be involved and create space and you can either do it structurally by mm-hmm. setting up teams that are a little bit in a way protected. Yep. Um, and that's sort of, if I think about what um, Oz is doing in the transformational space, it's something very similar. Mm. You know, we have a kind of a transformation team that's sort of pulled out. It's not in the day-to-day um, and it's partnering with the business to sort of think ahead and think ahead of the curve yeah, from a sort of innovation perspective. So I think that's structurally quite an important thing to do. Absolutely. It's often, though, in times of pandemics and times of recessions, the first jobs that go, though, because it's like, all right, we just need to go back to operations. Do you suggest that they should be the jobs that stay in those times where continuous research and continuous improvement needs to be looked at in in lieu of the continuous um, operational side? Yeah, well, I think it's that constant element of trying to balance the strategic long-term direction of a company mm. and then the delivery of the now. And I don't think it's an either or because mm. if you're not delivering now, you know, you don't have a company to build for the future. So Correct. if you're about to go bankrupt, I know last year for a lot of companies had to make some really serious, really serious, like kind of, can we get through the next month? Have we got cash flow? Correct. So I wouldn't ever just, you know, criticize somebody in those moments to do what's needed. Mm. Um, but I think for any company, if you're not constantly thinking about, you know, what the future looks like and you're only in the now, chances are the world around you will change really quickly and you won't see it changing and you'll be left behind. So I think I do think you've got to balance It's a Kodak moment, isn't it? (laughs) Um, So you mentioned culture, symbols, 
There was three elements. System, symbols, and behaviors. System, symbols, and behaviors. Can you just dive into that a little bit for us? I want to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. And we've sort of expanded. um, We use that system, symbols, and behaviors, but also now we take behaviors and we think about we've broken that out into sort of mindsets and skill sets. So Mm -hmm. the behavior, both what's going on inside your mind, but also what you see on the outside. And Mm -hmm. um, if you indulge the the academic piece, there's a, a theory called integral theory, yep. which says for any for any um, movement or any change, you need to look at the both the individual and the group, mm-hmm. but you also need to look at what's going on the inside as well as the outside. So it's that constant idea of like the interior and the exterior of the group and the individual. So if you think about it in that context, um, your systems is all the kind of the outside of the group. Mm-hmm. The symbols are sort of the inside of the group. Mm-hmm. The behaviors that we see you and I displaying is what you see on the outside of a person. Yep. And then the mindset is what's happening sort of That's inside it, a person's inside, head. Yeah. And if you want to get systemic, sustainable, long-term change, our view is that you need to be thinking of all four quadrants. So if you're only changing, say, behaviors, and a lot of companies go down this route, they put a lot of effort into, we're going to have a suite of behaviors and we're going to um, uh, talk about them and train people on them. And you only work on that one quadrant. But your systems, like say your pay, is is sending another message and your recruitment sends another message and your um, operating rhythm and the way you run meetings is all disconnected, then you won't get the change. Agreed. And so that's why you say you have to look at your systems fundamentally as well as your behaviors. The symbols I think most people get. Um, a lot of companies still don't, don't pay enough attention to the symbols and the symbolism of things they do as well. But the bit that's missed by a lot of companies, I think, is the mindset piece as well, yeah. um, which is, again, if you really want to get that deep, long-term sustainable change, supporting people to really um, understand why they think, how they think, mm. and notice how they think. We think it's almost like learning to notice like how your thought processes work mm. is the key to sort of that unlocking that long-term sort of sustainable sort of behavioral Change because which in the driving seat. It does. Self awareness is is really key in all this, and yeah. uh, those uh, the leadership programs. Uh, you know, we work with many businesses in, in helping them run leadership programs and work with their leaders and really understanding their behaviours. We can use diagnostic tools, three hundred and sixty feedback, yeah. all that sort of stuff. But you're one hundred percent right. It doesn't just stop at creating that awareness and behavior change because that's a long-term journey in itself. It's breaking behaviors of, of history and, yeah. and, 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 you know, kind of these are the behaviors that got you into this leadership position as it is. So how do we uh, improve that, you know, take you from good to great? But then on top of that, you go back into the work life or you go back into the, to the organization and then you still need 16 signatures to get something through or it's you still like, – and that's yeah, the – That's the system part. That's the system part and that's yeah. the issue because you're like, here you are, you're telling me to almost be woke in this world but then I go back and nothing works. Yeah. And that's where the – you know, we all we look at it almost from a culture as an ecosystem. 100, and, yeah. And it's just the all moving parts, everything has to work. Yeah, 100%. And that's, that's why we're, we're kind of almost pedantic about the system symbols – behaviors and mindsets because yeah. you if you're not thinking about them all as an integrated you say ecosystem yeah. um then you really you can put a lot of time and effort into one piece and then the system takes you and pulls you back and i don't say if anyway the the system part is 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 probably one of the most important parts of it because generally speaking you know our you, you you get whatever the system is designed to give you mm. and so most people and this is like more of a personal sort of philosophy i believe most people, you know, what I mean, really want to behave, you know, 
in an awesome way. Agreed. But often it's the system that they're in. It's amazing how often you can get really great people, put them into a toxic work environment and watch how their behavior changes mm. because everything that the, all the signals to them that tells on how you're expected to behave, yeah. you know, through the system starts to change that behavior. Yeah. So it's very hard to be, it's very hard to be that, to change this as a lone person if you're not actually designing right through the system all the changes that you, that you have to make. And that's a that's a human thing, isn't it? Really, if you, you there's that the sum of the five people. Have you heard that thing? The average wage of your five closest friends is generally where you would fall. And I, I don't know wage is just one way of sort of, a, but the mindset also falls into that place. Yeah. You look at your five closest people around you, and who you surround yourself with on a day to day basis, and you are an average of all five of those people. That's what they generally say. So if you're surrounding yourself with really great thinkers and people who are looking to innovate, people who are looking to change the world, then natu- naturally your mentality moves into that space. If you're yeah. hanging around with people who are, you know, uh, taking drugs or getting involved in crime or whatever, then naturally you start falling into that way as well. So, it's, yeah, you, your environment is absolutely uh, paramount to your success. Yep. High-performing teams, Oz Minerals is a high-performing team, doing very well. I watch the uh, the stock market quite, <laughs> quite regularly. Uh, I've been watching them for years. Talk to me about high-performing teams and how Oz Minerals got there and what you really implement. Is it working on those three simple systems and um, behaviours or is there anything in particular that when you walked in through the door at Oz Minerals that you said, right, this is the first thing that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take on and embark on? Well, to be honest, I mean, I'm really just sort of another person that's come in that's building on what's been gone before. Yeah. Uh, so this is Osmond was on that journey long before. Yeah. You know, I, I often used to, to joke and say it was in a way it was a consultant's almost like dream job. Yeah. Because often you you know as a consultant you go in and there's things that you're going into either turn around or mm-hmm. probably do the or, or pivot the company. Mm-hmm. Whereas all I was doing was taking these amazing foundations that were already in place mm-hmm. and just putting an extra. Just, right. just continuing, just continuing. Yeah, you know the, right. the incremental, the incremental improvements. So, yeah. um, so you walked into the Goldilocks zone. Yeah, in a way, actually, <laughs> I think so. Um, and so, and so on that, I think the first thing is that, you know, I think Oz, you know, back in sort of 2015 when it was really forming into the company, sort of that it is now, got really, really clear about um, about the culture that it wanted to have and the culture that it wanted to be. That's probably the first thing you've got to do as any company is be super create clear about what it is and what that looks like. And so for us, it was always around um, really, tr- really breaking the mindset of uh, and breaking the kind of the paradigm of mining, mm-hmm. you know, and becoming a modern mining company and then really starting to explore. Well, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be a modern company? What does that look like in terms of how people show up and, and how they behave and the way in which we innovate and the way in which we do business and the way in which we go about um, approaching all of our operations and thinking. So everything pretty much is put onto the table. Mm. So those elements of um, um, empowerment, devolved decision-making, um, innovative behavior, innovative thinking uh, was really, really crystal clear from an early stage. And then the company set about going, thinking about, again, through the lens of system symbols and behaviors, um, how do we start How do we start sort of building towards that? Um, and I think a big milestone then was sort of in about 2016, 2017, really getting clear about what those behaviors are going to be. Mm. Uh, and we have a we have a framework called our How We Work Together. It's mm-hmm. 24 behaviors. Yep. Um, and that work started in, in 2017. And then we we've, we had a big another sort of review of it in 2019. We, went, we looked at it and we said, okay, we've been playing around with it now for sort of two years. And we went out to the whole company and we talked to people and we had about a quarter of the workforce 
talked to us and we ran workshops and again looked at all the research and just stress tested and really then locked in those behaviors by the end of 2019 and that's kind of the bedrock pretty much of everything yeah. and it feeds into all of our systems all of our processes um and it's it, it really is like deeply now in the company those that behavioral framework yeah. um, and that i think is for any high performing team you've got to be really crystal clear about the behaviors that you want to see and then mm -hmm. you have to design them and weave them into into everything so um so it just becomes so it becomes like common language common language um but also part of the fabric yeah um to the point where people it, it just it's not something separate over here and you know that on a yeah. wall or well, it's, a picture it, it's the moment you walk in in your induction right this Absolutely. is well, it's probably even it's before that before that you, yeah when you're applying or looking at the brand as a whole yeah absolutely so when we think about we think about sort of talent attraction um you yeah. know and brand etc but it's right from what's that user experience from the moment somebody even yeah. like has any conversation with us whether they're they meet us at a conference or they're talking to us at, at an event or yeah. whatever that you know how do we give people an experience connecting with in with our company that is completely aligned to those those uh, six principles and those 24 behaviors so we pretty much from like from that point right through have that sort of lens around what's that experience um, and are we are we behaving are we showing up in a way that's that's actually aligned and is you know yeah. in keeping there's a few things in there that I heard <laughs> the 24 behaviors and how we work together yeah what's the one low-hanging one that you're thinking of right now that is critical mm. to how we work together inclusiveness yeah yeah i think by long shot because um for me so we have we on our span that we have like sort of planning delivering but also sort of um, innovation inclusiveness collaboration mm -hmm. and integrity um the inclusiveness one is the one that really speaks to the element of um understanding yourself as a person first and foremost and so that you can create space for other people. Mm. And I think you sort of made that, I think one of your kind of prompt questions, like what well, that secret sauce. And to me, it's around that psychological safety. Yeah. If you can create an environment in a company where people can just be themselves and show up as humans rather than how they think others are expecting them to behave, you can just lose all the wasted energy and effort that goes into that, mm. that part of the, the front mm. that people mostly Absolutely. put up you know, and bring people in so I think there's two things. One, it's a massive win for the company because you tap into people's, all their talents and mm. all their thinking and all their innovation. Um, but secondly, I think it's actually an obligation companies have because, you know, we're not around for a very long period of time. Absolutely. And I think if we spend so much of our, 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 our life in a working environment, we should be in an environment where, you know, we come as a human, yeah. you know, and we come and we're seen and we're accepted as that full person um, and we can thrive and grow. And there's so much, I think, loss of to humanity of toxic organizations that just lose all that. It's wasted, it's wasted yeah. potential. Inclusiveness is one. What does great inclusiveness look like? If you've got someone who is sort of uh, charismatic and, and, uh, and an extrovert and all the above, that, that is, that's who they are at, at a whole. Yeah. But are being disruptive with that behavior, not because they are, targeting to be disruptive just purely because it can be overwhelming <laughs> yeah how do you manage that situation or you know any other situation similar so i think the first question you have there is is why does that behavior experienced as disruptive okay. um yeah okay. you know you know for the other people is because they've also maybe got a very um homogenous mindset about 
how work should be done. Mm -hmm. So maybe there's maybe there's some mindsets or some narratives or assumptions there that need to be so challenged. Yeah. But then maybe also for the individuals, maybe that exuberance is also covering up something else that yeah. maybe they've got it. So to me, it's around really giving people the tools and the skills, you know, and 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 the and support to just always ask that question, mm. you know, which is sort of you know, the why. Why am I behaving this way? What am I holding to be true? What's the story? What's the narrative, you know, that I'm carrying? Um, and what impact is my behavior having on somebody else? So mm. quite often I think we we talk about sort of perspective um, taking a sort of, um, you know, sort of, well, I'll tell you what I think, mm. you know, as opposed to how do I create space where I can genuinely hear what you're saying, yeah. you know, and, 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 and allow you to feel free and safe to be able to sort of explore that. So, so I think it's and the starting point for that has to be, um, first of all, I've, I need to notice even what I'm thinking when you start to speak. Yeah, it's understanding those triggers. Yeah, the, 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 yeah, we call them triggers and gongs. Yeah, you know, so what's my gong? What, yeah. what kind of what's that thing that goes? Ooh. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and then why? Why is that a gong for me? Yeah, it's probably from something in the past. You know, is that true for me right now? And am I unfairly filtering out what you're saying? Yeah, you know, because of that. So if you can understand self first, then you can create space for others. So I think about you. You know that. That I talked about about that psychological safety. We've spent a lot of time in the last probably two years um, with the team of all of our senior leaders, um, spreading the set throughout um, the rest of the company. Is really investing leadership development, starting at the self. Mm. So if you can understand self and you can really help people understand that and on how they think, then you can start. All the other things falls into place. Absolutely. It's a long journey to understand self. And even when you think you understand self, you still don't. <laughs> um, but I, I really do believe that uh, the, the understanding triggers is, uh, is one that yeah. is um, probably the low-hanging fruit if we're talking about where you can work on. I reacted that way. Why did I react that way? And at what point? And, you know, you can almost start feeling – I used to always talk about it um, – I'm addicted to time, right? I like time. I like, and you were late today. So, but I was all right. I'm getting better at it. But I, I'm glad I, I rang ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but, but you, I mean, you, you rang through and you, I think that's the thing. If I'm late, I do, do exactly what you did. I'm going to be 15 minutes late. You know, you give it and you, you, you think about the person on the other, on the other end. If I'm late and uh, there's no way of contacting them, then all of a sudden I can feel like, uh, you know, switch has gone off, the kettle's gone, the blood starts to boil, the, ang the anxiety starts yep. to play. Uh, and, I, um, and that was something that was really strong in me a couple of years ago. Being uh, very much in the approval-seeking world, I work in business development and business growth and I manage my own business and all this sort of stuff. So I really want to create a great customer experience for everyone. So there's also that play of really understanding who I am and understanding this is going to trigger me unless mm -hmm. I put some parameters in place um, and also be very open with people about you know what my expectations are and how and, and creating some clear guidelines on yeah. how we would, we would work. Um, not that my way is the highway, but in the sense of, look, this is how I operate sort of thing. So I think clear communication is also, you know, you talk inclusiveness, but we often use a saying, and it's a Brene Brown saying, is clear as kind. So be really clear about what it is you're trying to achieve and what, where you're trying to go and what it is that um, and, and what we're actually trying to create value for. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's the the human mind and working with with people is, is it is. And what I'd probably add on to that is there's an and to that as well, 
which is also exploring why is that a trigger for you? So yeah, yeah, what's what's what are you holding to be true that creates that because that trigger is coming from an assumption. So there's something there you've got an assumption, and you're holding something to be true. So that behavior is being interpreted through a certain lens. One thing that we talk about quite a lot is we often look through we look often looking through a mask, yeah. which is our our, our inner narratives and on those assumptions. And we're not even aware of that. Mm. So I think one of the greatest things we can do is people help them almost take the mask off and look at it. Yeah, and then explore it and say, well, actually, it might it might still be as true for me right now, or things in my environment might have changed. And yeah, the things I'm holding to be true might not be as true, or might not be serving me as well. Absolutely. And that that to me is that piece about understanding self, because yeah. if we can do that then we are a little bit more in control. So we can then make choices as to whether or not I'm still going to hold that or we can start to loosen some of those triggers. Mm. And, and we call it like sort of those like kind of hooks and releases. So how do you actually start to go up? That was really driving my behavior quite strongly up to this point. But actually it's now probably at a point where I can let go of some of those assumptions mm. or some of those you know um, narratives or simple stories that we tell ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And just even recognize that there's a simple story in there. Oh, without doubt. Yeah. Oh, I've deep dived into yeah. my <laughs> into that. I I, I um I come from an Italian family who is always yeah. uh, seeking approval, right? Always worrying about what someone else is thinking, and yeah. so I think that's uh, being on time and almost trying not to let someone down. Down, yeah, yeah, is, yeah. is where that comes from. And that so. that piece about the inclusivity is that um, we're talking a lot about sort of this concept, you know, of um, really you know high trust high accountability and we're trying to up the bar really lift the bar in terms of feedback but the way we're trying to approach it is thinking about well quite often feedback tends to be judgmental so you're late so let me give you some feedback yeah. about you know the impact of you being late on me and just in case you haven't noticed that you were late I'll give you some feedback yeah. but actually that if I'm doing that that's coming through the lens of it really annoys me. Mm. So it serves me to give you that feedback yeah. because I've got some wisdom to share with you that yeah. is going to make you better, which is quite quite kind of paternalistic in a way. Yeah. If we change that around and we've had this conversation and I know know why that's such a trigger for you, some, now potentially something happens and I observe, I might be able to give you some observations yeah. that are in service of what you're working on. It's yeah. still being you know, clear and still at times being um, uncomfortable yeah. about giving those observations, but now I'm trying to serve your growth yeah. rather than kind of serve my, myself. So it's yeah, really switching absolutely. the concept of feedback to be yeah. one of well, it, developmental with, feedback. One hundred percent. If you if you do go in with that, look, I'm going to give you some feedback and all that stuff. You can almost create an anxiety, anxious yeah. uh, opportunity or potential for anxiety in the future from that person. It's like, oh, I can't let this person down again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. then that starts eating away at the very fabric of what you're trying to trying to achieve. Yeah. Uh, inclusivity <laughs> is the uh, is the is the word that you're using from a as the number one fundamental from a from a team point of view and how we work together. With that, I want to put a leadership lens on if we're thinking about leadership, what is the what is high performing leadership look like if we are going to be inclusive to all types of leadership? Yep. What is what do you see as being the most high performing style of leadership? And uh, so it's a good question. Like if anybody answers that ever uh, gets the real answer, they'll make a fortune. Yeah. But I say but I say if they do, they're probably not being quite honest. Yeah. I don't think there's any one exact one. Again, but again, we got back. We, our starting point was inclusive leadership. So yeah. I think leaders, and, and you know this sort of this well. There's times, you know, in sort of really complicated situations or you know technical challenges that 
the type of leadership you might need might be quite, you know, around um, prioritization, structure, order, yeah. you know, protection, resource allocation, etc. Um, there's other times in really complex, grey, you know, unclear, ambiguous situations where actually the type of leadership you need is the opposite, absolute mm. opposite. It's about saying, actually, we don't have the answer. I don't have the answer. You don't have it. But how do we learn our way towards the answer? And so how do I create the conditions and be an enabler? Yeah. So there's times where I think you, you're asking our leaders quite often to be in very different roles. Sometimes, you know, we need them to be in a very clear kind of, you know, technical sort of orientated, almost like that kind of authority sort of style role. Mm -hmm. And other times it's actually, we need them to be very, very different. And that's about creating the enabling conditions to allow all the great ideas and all the different perspectives from all the people that can bring something to help us as a group learn our way mm -hmm. sort of towards what mm -hmm. that solution might be. So depending on what the situation is, I think you need something different yeah. and you've got to help leaders. Situational leadership. Yeah, yeah. You've, got, you've got to help leaders understand the difference Yeah, and when they're going to need to, you know, when they're going to have drawn different, you know, different parts of the toolkit. Yeah. But I think so it's, it's having that toolkit readily available though, yeah. is the skill set in itself. Absolutely. It? Yeah. So if it's, if it's a, you know, super complicated, you know, you know, technical, and we obviously in that deal in that space a lot, you know, we design and we build mines and we operate mines. They are and I'm learning, I'm not a miner at yeah, all. No. And every you know, every week yeah. I'm blown away by how complex, yeah. I don't know how complicated and, yeah. and amazingly technically, you know, sort of um, complicated the whole sort of that space is. Um, and that needs at times a certain level of subject matter expertise and and and, and help and guidance to the teams that you're that you're working with. Yeah. And other times it's about saying actually, um, you know, the team probably has the answer much more than you as an mm. individual and how do you create the conditions that allows them to, you know, to, to, to bring that up. And, and that's where it goes back to the inclusivity piece, because if you're leading in a way, just through your lens, you're going to potentially cut out so many ideas and so yeah. many, you know, yeah. kind of new concepts, um, because they might not be in line with like your way of thinking. Yeah. Yes. Oz Minerals is, you talked about the technicality of the work that you do and, and the complexity of the work that you do. You would have many engineers within your ranks. Yeah. And engineering, typically, if I'm going to paint them with a brush, like to get like to get stuff done. <laughs> they like to achieve mm -hmm. results and they want to get there quickly and methodically and and um, not necessarily the most people-orientated way of thinking, right, just purely because of their interest in the actual work that they're doing. We want to design something. We want to create something. We want to create something that's safe for our people. Yeah. But I'm not really concerned about the journey that, can, that goes along with getting that. I just want to get it done. How do you manage the engineering minds or the technical minds in that space where um, – you you work with them to include the people on the journey of trying to get the outcomes. Um, so there's a couple of things maybe. I I, I think what you're describing, and, and a lot of the team would say that themselves. They've been rewarded and trained and educated, you know, because they've been in that very very technical world where Correct. there is an answer, yeah. you know, and it is complicated yeah. and it is drawing on subject matter expertise and and there's a way of kind of designing your way to the answer. So really, it's not about I think that's not to say that as humans mm. that they aren't massively inclusive in all other parts of their lives, et cetera. And like they are, I think most of my biggest learning is that humans are humans. We are so alike. Yeah. You know, we may have different ways of thinking and, you know, work styles and, 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 um, uh, kind of professional, you know, kind of areas that we're in, yep. 
But fundamentally, you pull the people out and you look at who's running the, who's managing the soccer team and running those not-for-profit. We're all very, very similar. Yeah. So for me, really, it's purely about, again, just layering on an extra level of a toolkit, mm. you, know, f- you know, for that group to give them some additional resources to draw on um, and yeah. a different ways of thinking and making it okay to not have the answer. That's probably the biggest bit of feedback we get, yeah. which is if you... If you've been trained and educated and rewarded, you know, for, for knowing things, it's very hard to not know. Yeah. Because, you know, it goes back to the whole mindsets and narratives and yeah. why we, you know, what our triggers. So the biggest thing we can do is to make it okay to not know, to make it okay to experiment. Obviously, we're not going to say it can't be okay to not know when you're about to go into, say, from a safety point of view or from a, um, you know, how we're going to design, you know, um, reinforcement of a, you know, a development scope, et cetera, in a mine. Yeah. There are certain things, but when it comes down to how are we going to hit our strategic aspiration and become a zero entry carbon, you know, carbon neutral mine, we don't even have the technical solutions to do that yet. That takes a whole different way of thinking. So it really is around, I think, helping people be, get comfortable not knowing and making it okay mm. uh, and creating a common language and a common sort of culture that allows that thing that we call it sort of safe to fail experiments. Yeah, you know, it's right. the growth mindset. Yeah, absolutely. Stuff, yeah, so uh, so that to me is it's less around um, having to convince somebody or teach them something, something different. I think it's just more about making it okay. Yeah. Um, and recognizing that um, it might be certain toolkits and ways of thinking uh, that they just haven't had a chance. I just haven't been encouraged to explore up to that point in time. That's brilliant. You you talked about. I want to talk about. Um, you mentioned something earlier about Oz Minerals wanting to be the new type of mining company. What does that look like? What's a new type of mining? What are the what are the plans and what's the future vision for Oz Minerals? Without giving away your secrets, obviously, we don't want to, the BHPs of the world listening in and stealing your your thunder. But what what are you as a team working on to become that new innovative mining business? Um. Two things. First of all, I'd say parts of it are there already, mm-hmm. uh, and parts of it we're still we're still working on. And yeah. we've purposely never defined what a modern mining company looks like for that very reason. Because mm-hmm. if you as soon as you do it, it's not modern anymore. Yeah, it's, it's constantly changing. Isn't <laughs> it's it? constantly changing. So um, for that very reason, we we, we almost pur- we, we purposely leave it rather sort of ambiguous, yeah. um, and then we're constantly in that quest to say, well. What's our context? What's happening in the world around us? What's out there? Um, and we try and look outside of the industry a lot. Yeah. Uh, so not just looking within the industry, but actually looking outside the industry for ideas, for innovative ways of thinking, uh, for different ways of working. Um, and that's that's so we're, that's the sort of direction that we're always heading in. Yeah. Uh, at the moment, it's very much around um, very focusing on uh, trying to break down the mental uh, so take a step back i think from behavior point of view that's been a really big focus yeah. and a really successful focus and i think that's quite strongly now embedded into the into the into the fabric and kind of the dna of, of the company the last year or two and we used we used the pandemic last year as a little bit of a sort of an extra accelerator for this yep. was to really start challenging the concept of how we work yeah. you know how is work done now particularly in something like the mining industry it's been done the same way for a very long time particularly in fifo yeah 
and quite often it's not being challenged. So one of our strategic aspirations is to challenge, you know, to have no almost assumptions about how and where work can be done mm. uh, and put everything on the table and make everything up for grabs. So we want to work with the best talent no matter where they reside. So for that reason, we went, we made a decision last year to move to, to be a remote working company. Uh, and we aspirationally want to become a virtual company. Uh, so we've given people the freedom to base themselves um, wherever they like they want to work. Um, with you know an expectation that we'll come together to create and collaborate, yeah. etc. Um, not all of our roles, obviously, as of right now, oh, yeah. can Absolutely. be done that way. Correct. So what we're in the journey of doing is really going back and challenging all the assumptions. Because back to what we were talking about earlier about mental models, mm. what are the assumptions that we're holding that tells us that that job needs to be done that way in that format? Mm. And what can we test? What can we so? Um, uh, at the mines at the moment at Carpatina at Prominent Hill, they're doing some incredible work challenging um, and with, with all of their teams, with their people, really trying to challenge um, each and every piece of work to say, well, actually, it kind of be done a different way. Mm. What are we holding to be true that might not be as true? What could we test? What could we think about differently? Um, and trying to break. So I think that's probably the, the big yeah, focus absolutely. at the moment because Look, that's what leads to flexibility because if you can't change the way you do the work, you can't really truly open up the, that world of work to a much wider demographic and to, you know, and, and to give people much more flexibility in their, yeah. in their working lives. I love it. I love that way of thinking, looking at something from a point of view of how can we best improve this? There is the old adage though, don't fix, don't fix what's not broke. Right. And if you're from a safety perspective, you're working with some of the people down in the mines is tinkering with some of those things a little bit dangerous or are you being really, is that a sort of a slower moving beast in its, in itself? Well, I think it's, it's, it's two things. So safety and like any industry, but particularly in the mining, it, it's just like, it's the core. It's yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I, I think it's an you talk industry. talk about fabric, that is the fabric. Absolutely. Yeah. That, and that's so deeply in the fabric. Yeah, um, again, coming from a non, coming from outside the industry, yeah. you're really struck by it. It's, it's, correct. It's very personal to people, mm -hmm. safety. So everything starts Everything starts with, with that safety lens. This is more around um, trying to think all the layers around that and unpack it. And it's less about tinkering. I think when you tinker, you just take what you have and you probably don't even challenge some of the assumptions. Yeah. You just sort of go, how can we incrementally improve it? This is around saying, well, what are we holding to be true about how that job was even done in the first place? Yeah. Uh, and that, obviously automation, digital robotics, that's a huge other part of it as well, yep. because the way in which we're trying to reimagine work, a lot of it is also about using, looking to the future, looking to AI, looking to robotics. Yes. So that's the other big focus for us at yeah. the moment. Is Talking about safety, that improves safety measures Absolutely, too far. <laughs> yeah. So how do, we, how do we take that, and but create an environment for that to thrive by also challenging all the various assumptions, that, you know, sort of about how, how sort of work. You know, a good example is like um, last year, obviously when the pandemic hit, from a safety point of view, we took everybody apart from essential workers um, off the mines mm -hmm. um, and moved to remote working. Now, a lot of those jobs, nobody had ever stopped to that point and actually said, why does that job need to be FIFO? Why do you have to fly out, you know, to a mine site, be on a mine, sit at a desk in a mine, be away from your family, you know, be tied into rosters, be tied into, you know, which then cuts down the demographics, you know, that can actually come and probably yeah. do those roles hadn't really been challenged to a large, it just had been always been that way. Yeah. That's the way all those roles have been done. When you really challenge it and break it down, there's really a much smaller number of roles than you actually think there are yeah. that genuinely physically have to be sort of on, on a mine. Side, yeah. So it, as a first point, we were able to like 
challenge all of that. So yeah. that's been able to um, offer an awful lot more flexibility. Uh, and we talk about work-life plans. We yeah. we moved to last year to um, giving everybody the, uh, not just the right to ask for work-life, but almost like it's, it's, it's an obligation now. Every leader has to have, make sure everybody in their team has a personalized work-life plan that's written to take their whole of life into account. Mm-hmm. Um, and we flipped it a little bit to sort of say, almost as a company we have to be able to, we have to be able to say why it wouldn't work rather than the individual having to come and say why it will work yeah it's almost like a it's a it's a right now everybody so has it's because you, know, you and i have talked about this offline it's about asking the people within the business to talk about what's ideal for them yeah yeah so for, and for everybody it's, it's different it's unique so what does the ideal picture look like in terms of the, the work you love to do the way in which you like to do it when are you at your best you know, when do you, some people are mornings, some people are evenings, some people have caring responsibilities, some people have young kids, others mm. have like, have a community work they're involved in. So everybody's different. Mm. So if you just say to people, design it, write down what that perfect looks like for you. And then pretty much, unless there's a real reason why we can't make that work, then why shouldn't we be able to structure it for you? And it takes a lot of effort because you have to then, you know, there's, there's no set working patterns anymore. Like in yeah. my team, I've got people working you know, different days of the week, different hours of the day. Yeah. They're in different states. So trying to work out when we're going to come together as a team. Yeah. So you have to you have to work a lot harder at some of the the glue part. Yeah. Um, you know, and and sort of managing. So it, it takes a lot of extra work. But it gives everybody the chance to then be a lot more treat them as adults. Yeah. It does. It says, you know, because people want to come to work. People want to do their best work. But again, if we always had a mental model at work had to be done between the hours of like, you know, for an office work at eight and and six and it had to be done physically at an office in a, you know, that you drove to. I mean, why? Yeah. Really, we're technology these days. And I think that's what last year showed us. You know, we were going that direction anyway, but we used last year as a bit of a launch pad to sort of really try and shake it up and break it up and taking that thinking now also into not into operational roles as well and asking everybody to, to just start challenging. Yeah, and I really, those assumptions. I really, I really uh, love what you guys are doing. You know, taking the company virtually, and uh, you and I have talked again offline in in the sense that um, if not everyone can be in a room in a meeting, then and well, there's one person online, then everyone needs to go yeah. online, right? Because it creates the you don't want the people in the room having that sort of uh, almost collective power as opposed yeah. to the person who's who's watching in. Um, I want to ask you a question. I want to challenge that, not because I, 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 more from just another point of view. Do you think this podcast would be as smooth running if we were both online at the moment? Like I really believe in the power of being in the same room and having a conversation. Yep. Do you miss that by moving purely online? Or do you, because it, it can become very transactional in the sense, as opposed to building relationships, you don't get to really see mannerisms and tone and, you know, all, all the above. Yeah. So I think it's, again, being really clear that's not one or the other. Yeah. Because I agree. I think humans are humans. Like we've got mirror neurons. Yeah. Like, we, we, you know, we just, we know the psychology of like how we form bonds, et cetera. Um, and I think it's really important. So one of the things that we do is say, Every team now has to put a lot of time and thought into thinking about those personal connections. Yeah. When are they going to come together as a team? So we said, go base yourself wherever you want to. Go live in New Zealand, yeah. go to Singapore, you know, wherever you, you can work anywhere you like. But as a team, every team is going to agree its cadence yeah. and it's going to involve a level of coming together, you know, that personal connection because I guess it is super important. Humans, humans need, we need that. We yeah, need that absolutely. sense of touch and that sense of connection and, and, and close proximity. So, uh, but we're trying to free up teams to work that out themselves. 
Okay. What's that level of, how does that work for you? Because every team's work is different and it's, yeah. it's, it's pattern yeah. is different. So um, it's no, it's not saying about being never coming together, but it's saying come together with purpose mm. because if you're coming together, but you're coming together to come sit in a row of desks if it, yeah. and uh, uh, Jimmy Lynn is kind of, we might as well do that from wherever you want to, yeah. you know? So it's come together with purpose, come together to create, to, to collaborate, to build connection. Um, don't come together just because that's how you've always done it. Yeah. That's that's really the challenge. The other side of the coin is that um, uh, I always remember it was, it was February last year. We had just finished the design and it had been sort of probably eight, nine months in the making of our senior leadership development program. It was all face-to-face because I was a believer that you cannot do this deep personal vertical development work mm. um, virtually. I was, yes. I, I and obviously COVID hit and we were few weeks away from kicking off the first uh, yeah and we really sat down and we were like well what do we do do we you know we thought at the time it was going to pass in a in a, in a month or two we were yeah. like do we do we pause and then we thought no let's let, let's try you know let, let's give it a go and see what we can do and let's not pause it now because we don't know how long COVID's going to last and it could thank god could yeah. it lasted yeah. a lot longer yeah. than we were expecting um but i remember going into thinking this is not going to be as good we will not be able to recreate this virtually. How do you create that sense of deep safety to help people unpack and explore, you know, all these things we were talking about in virtual environments? And we had to go back to the drawing, but we didn't know how to do it. Yeah. Uh, and we worked with our with our partner um, on chartered leadership who were amazing. And they'd never done it virtually mm. either. And I realized afterwards, we ourselves, <laughs> we were caught in our own mind traps. We had our own mind trap that this couldn't work, could not be done virtually. Um, and yet I think what we've shown having over the 12 month program is things happened in a virtual environment that I never, ever would have believed. So if we had not been forced into that through the situation and the context, mm. we would never have moved. We would never have done that. We were able to, um, you know, do probably more. We, had, we were able to bring in people from the U.S. We had different, you know, contributors to the program that we would never have been able to bring into yeah. it. We um, created spaces virtually that, again, I fundamentally would have argued till the cows came home before last February, couldn't be done. So I had to step back and go, wow, like what else am I wrong about? Mm. Because I had such obviously a mindset around how it could be done. So I think we can do more in the virtual sense than we thought we could do. Um, We just had to let go of certain things and we had to rethink assumptions. But it's not to say that the personal connection is not also as important. So I I think so to me, it's it's both. And I I just, I I hear a lot of people saying, oh, well, you know, we're going to get people back into the office as soon as we can. I hear an element there of probably some of those, maybe the mindsets I was holding sort of last yeah, year and, and thinking, well, you know, I was just say to people, be brave, like mm. challenge them and, and see what you can do because the, the upside and the positive thing that it brings is tremendous. I mean, from a purely selfish point of view as a company, it opens up our, like our talent pool mm. phenomenally. To the world. Not just to the world, there's a physicality and a geographical piece, but thinking about all the different demographics you know, yeah. think about, you know, the underrepresented yeah. demographics that work is closed off to at times. Yeah. Um, you can tap into that massively um, if you can create that because that virtual working gives people so much more freedom to manage their time. Um, so people can really build their lives around. You can, I suppose, they can, they can design work around their life mm. rather than the traditional model, which is I need you in this set location, this set period of time and try and squeeze in life around yeah. the edges, 100%. which for a lot of people, then it puts them out of that, out of out of the running for, for coming to that work. So our view is that it just opens up 
like explodes our talent pool, yeah. you know, of people who can bring in new thinking, new ideas by creating this level of flexibility and recognizing along the way that you have to work really extra damn hard to then make sure that you keep that personal connection going. And um, so we've, we, we spend quite a lot of time now with, is thinking about that yeah. and thinking about the, the, the personal side of it. Yeah, I love it. The interesting question to come out of that for me is the, the mental health and well-being of, the, of our people who are working online and aren't getting that human connectivity. I know I'm, if I am, sound like I'm coming out with the lens that, yeah. you know, that, that uh, you have to be in a room with someone to uh, humans crave human connection, all this sort of stuff. Have you got any data or is there any correlation between working at home and the, and the mental health and that sort of feeling of loneliness and, or are you saying that that's non-existent in the data that you've got at the moment? So I think from a data point of view, so we, we do a pulse of all of our people um, mm-hmm. every two, every two months, so every roughly eight weeks. Um, and in there we do, we do track, we, you know, sort of mental wellbeing and health, et cetera. And um, so the data is telling us, is, is saying that it, that because we're trying to obviously track the change quite closely over the last yeah. sort of eighteen months. Yeah. So the data is telling us that that um, you know that that we're not seeing any any deterioration or any decrease. I think just as humans, the whole world is struggling. Yeah. You know, with because the virtual way of working, all those personal elements that we would put in place to you know to, to make sure we've kept that connection. Um, what's happening particularly around Australia at the moment with lockdowns we're not able to do yeah. you know, so people aren't able to fly down and we aren't getting together physically um, and I think there's not a human on earth that's not struggling yeah. with that sense of disconnection from mm-hmm. family and loved ones and um, so I think that that's just inevitable I think if anybody says that they're not I don't know what land they're living in yeah. um, but what you can do again is is just not think sort of black and white about it but kind of go okay so what do I need to do to create that level of connection, but just have to do it virtually. So we've introduced a, a concept called check-ins. So we check in and we check out of, you know, pretty much anything that's going to last more than an hour or so. Um, and a check-in effectively is be able to articulate whatever's on your mind. So when I was, people come into a meeting, I'll say, what's on your mind as you enter the meeting with no expectation that's got anything to do at work? Simple invite invitation. And that can be anything from, you know, I just tripped over the dog on the way in and, you know, or I had a fight with my kids, yeah. you know, or, um, or I just, I'm down, I'm sad. I'm just really, I'm having a hard day today yeah, or, not feeling it. Yeah. Or, or does that next meeting I'm going to, I'm not prepared for it. And to be honest, that's clouding my mind. It can be yeah. anything. It's, it's really giving people a space, just name it, tame it. Yeah. And I think that is really important because that's giving people, a, a, and what we're finding, sometimes those check-ins can last 15, 20 minutes because somebody might need to, might then check in about something that's actually quite, you know, quite meaningful on their mind and and need some time to talk about it. Mm. And we, we give them that space. So that's, I think, a really, really, again, simple thing. I've often said to, so at, at various sort of talks, et cetera, costs nothing. Mm. You can introduce check-ins, check-outs tomorrow. Costs nothing. You don't have to train people how to do it. Yeah. It's just about saying that giving people a time to almost mentally transition into the work they're about to do um, and come in present mm then means you can be really focused in the work they're doing. But also I think it has a big mental health place as well because what we've noticed is that compared to, say, how we were operating when we were all, you know, pre-kind of February yeah. 2020, 2020. Um, we were just so busy. Mm. You know, we were in and out of meetings all the time. We were in, we were very focused. I mean, the mining industry is incredibly 
fast moving fast moving um really efficient time efficient um and task oriented sort of environment and so we were moving on the go all the time and that that social interaction was happening you know in the you know at kind of in the in the kitchen and kind of in little walks etc but in the work we were very organized yeah now we don't have the the water cooler and we don't have the coffee you sit around have a coffee so what you do is you've got to design it into into your work so creating those spaces to get people to check in check out um, is really, I think, important because it lets that social element come in. Yeah. Um, some of the other practices is... Sorry, can I just yeah. uh, query on the check-in? What does it look like? Is it, a, is it just an open source uh, where um, teams invite, where anyone can join the meeting in, in this particular hour? Or how, what is... Let's talk about an example. So um, um, every two weeks, like my team, we get, we get together. Yeah. Um, we're going to spend a couple of hours doing our sprint planning because yeah. we've moved to sort of... Uh, our sort of really sort of agile ways of working so we we sprint plan and review and yep. do retro so we'll start up planning and we'll say okay quick check-in mm-hmm. and everyone just knows that we just go around the room and usually one person will open it with and it doesn't have to be the you know the the more senior person in the room but anybody can open it with let's check in right what's on your mind with no expectation that it's got anything to do with the work yeah of today so you check into a meeting yeah and effectively it's just so it's just it's, it's a practice it's just a yeah. ritual and a practice okay. of checking in and people sometimes go um, and part of the practice is saying what's on your mind and then saying, I'm in. It's like mm. a kind of a mental, like, right, yep. I'm ready. Yeah. And some people take five seconds, say, oh, nothing much on my mind. I'm in. Yeah. And others might say, might share something that's more meaningful and might take two, three minutes to check yeah, in. Okay. And there's no necessarily discussion about it. There's no commentary. There's no judgment. It's purely, it's not for discussion. Yeah. It's purely a case of expressing whatever's on your mind to just notice that it's on your mind so you can almost, I'm noticing it, I'm putting it aside, and now I'm in yeah, and I'm ready okay. for the content, for the work of the, of, of the purpose of the it's meeting. It's almost like wiping your feet before you enter the... <laughs> it's a little bit. <laughs> Isn't and, it? Yeah. It, yeah. It, do you have to... Um, and sorry, just finish up. So then we check out. You check, okay. Yeah, no, we're not as good at that. I noticed that we can be, we always kind of get to like one minute to the hour and yeah. everyone's racing to the next Everyone's meeting. Out, yeah. we, we, the idea is to check in, but also check out to help you transition to the next. To the next. So yeah. it's, it's kind of like a mental state change yeah. to kind of recognize that if our brains are just on all the time and we're not present and we're not mindful, that actually, A, we're less productive. So we know from all the science and all the research that that mindfulness, that sense of presence um, actually makes us far more clear in our thinking. Mm. Uh, so we've got like, like when initially we introduced, to give you all the science and stats yeah, around yeah. the impact it has on team decision-making and thinking yeah. and creativity. But there's a huge human element part in terms of mental health as well. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's both. Um, is there So two questions. Is there a time limit on how long that check-in is? If you've got an hour meeting and could like has the check-in potential time, go for 15 minutes. And, and the other question yep. is do you put gaps in between meetings, uh, ah, so especially if they're on? Great uh, question, yeah. great question. Um, is there a time limit? No. And do we put gaps in? No. And we should do. We, we have talked about it. Mm. Uh, we haven't, if go back to sort of systems, we haven't systematized that. I think that would be something we'll have to start thinking about. Mm. We, we try, right, for, for whenever I can, like 50 minute meetings, for example, yeah. Yeah. Um, purposely, um, or 55 minutes, or just, yeah. just to leave because I know people will be going to that next window. Yeah. I'd say I'd still spend probably 99% of my time kind of hanging up on one call and and, jumping and the next there. call's already started yeah. and I'm jumping into the next call. So no, we don't. And that's something I think I think we'd have to get more systematized about. Um, is there a time limit? No, again, ideally, 
you check in and check out of every every meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, what we tend to do at the moment, because we're just you know we're we're working our way towards it. Certainly, anything that's um, a longer meeting, we mm-hmm. all we'll always check in. So if it's a half day workshop or a couple of hours, we'll yeah. always do that. Generally, for those quick, you know, an hour in the diary to just to get a group together to talk about something, we probably we don't do it sort of as much. Okay. Um, but for all of our big things now, so our, yeah, so it's yeah. situational. Everyone really it is, understands. Yeah. It's like. Oh, we got an hour meeting. I'm not going to sit here and talk 15 minutes about something that's on my mind. Is that or absolutely, or, yeah. yeah? And in fact, I would suggest that most people get quite frustrated. Um, and no also, doubt. you'd get, you'd get a bit, good. yeah, that's you'd, get, you'd get a bit tired. If yeah, you're like, especially if you've got an agenda you want to work to and you want to get some decisions made out of yeah. this meeting, then check in. Look, I'm yeah. not trying to discount the power of the check in, it's just that there are, I would like to see some parameters around something, yes, because right? it yeah. is, I think it's a great idea, yeah. Yeah, but but, but um, in terms of those those longer meetings, generally I like to, I find if a group of ten it never takes more than five minutes. Yeah, five five, yeah, five yeah. seven. Most minutes. people so, are aware. So generally, in an agenda, when I'm if we're working on say you know team sort of team sessions etc., we'll always just factor in that the first ten minutes is factory check in. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes it can be a lot a lot faster than that. Um. There's been some articles in the uh, industry at the moment around harassment on site, yep. on, on you know, in the villages and, and whatnot on site. Um, what is Oz doing about those sort of things? I know it hasn't been specifically directed at Oz. There's been another, it's been in other, other it's in the mining industry but in other companies. Yeah. Uh, it really is obviously uh, an importance to really understand that area. Uh, and, you know, you talk about inclusivity, diversity, inclusivity, all all that world, harassment. How does yeah. Oz manage that part of the world in, yeah, their, in their people? Good. It's a really topical question. In fact, we were just chatting with some investors yesterday. They asked the exact same question. Um, I suppose our starting point has always been, you know, we, 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 we call it inclusive inclusion and diversity, not diversity and inclusion. So yeah. because you have to have that inclusive environment, otherwise you can bring in as many diverse thinkers and people as you like, mm-hmm. but they'll exit your company really quickly or yeah. you won't tap into the potential that they can bring. Mm-hmm. So you've got to start with an inclusive environment. So I think the behaviors that we've and the framework, um, those behaviors are, you know, themselves tell you that there is zero tolerance yep. and zero acceptance for that type of for any type of harassment particularly sort of you know gender or race or yep. or sexual related harassment so um so our starting point has always been build the right culture that's just you have to you've got to create the right environment on top of that then as an industry particularly with fifo and particularly being a very male dominated industry you've got to also then be practical and say even with all of that built into place you cannot ever rest in your laurels and assume because the, the situation, the context of that environment means that there is there's more opportunity, you know, f- you know, f- sort of for behaviours to be unobserved yep. and, and unseen. It's different, very different to an, an office environment. So, um, what we've what we started doing at the beginning of this year is we're doing a lot of um, workshops, um, sort of sort of in the business to really test all our controls to kind of kind of go back and go. Let's not just assume that everybody's behaving, you know, in the way and that the culture is exactly, you know, sort of as we would like it to be. Let's go and check all the potential causes. So we, we were, we were a, um, a real philosopher at risk mm-hmm. at Oz Minerals. We talk about threats and opportunities. Yeah. And, you know, for every threat or every opportunity, what are the causes that could lead to it? Mm-hmm. What are the controls that you'd have in place? Are they, and are they actually, you know, working right now? So yep. we've, we're undergoing uh, quite a thorough sort of risk assessment in that space to say, this may be how, we've designed it but actually 
what might be all the causes you know, of a, of a threat, say, of a, of a harassment incident? Um, and have we actually tested each of those potential controls that we have in place? What evidence do we have that the control is working? Um, and how do we keep testing it and keep checking it? So we're kind of doing quite a thorough yeah, risk right. review of that at the moment. Part of that was in that pulse that I talked about. Again, those measures in the pulse, we measure things like inclusion. Uh, so we're constantly able to track the level sense of inclusion maturity. Uh, we track things like um, you know, development and growth and engagement, et cetera. But we've also put in some explicit questions, uh, particularly around um, that sense of feeling safe, feeling that if there was um, a level of harassment that it would be acted on, mm-hmm. uh, if it was reported. Um, and by, So now we're able to track quite explicit questions as well. And it's run by a third party, sort of independent. We use a platform called PCOM. Yep. So... Um, Everybody's commentary on it is completely anonymous mm-hmm. and that gives people sort of a sense, a sort of a safe space if they felt they weren't able to speak to the leader yeah. or some of their work colleagues around what was happening. Um, they can always, you know, in, in that kind of that pulse every two months, we can pick up and we do that every now and then we'll pick up sort of an indicator, maybe in a comment or something. Yeah. And we can then go in and with purpose explore and understand sort of what's happening a little bit more. Um, so that's, I think that's going to be really helpful as well as to, to make sure that we're just never sitting back and assuming that, you know, that everything is perfect and yeah. that there's no risk. It's about being proactive and making sure it doesn't happen. I think, mean, like, you're never going to hit the 100%, and I think because there's human behavior, it has yeah. a tendency yeah. to... Yeah, but, but you do. You, you have to be realistic about yeah. that, you know, that I think as, a, as an industry, you know, that we really have to probably even be much more vigilant. I came from the, um, you know, manufacturing and, you know, with everybody in clean rooms, physically in, in, in our environments, a very different environment. Yeah. Um, I think certainly mining, underground mining in particular, we have to just be incredibly vigilant. And, But again, it keeps going back to the most powerful control is going to be one where if I come onto a, you know, into a workplace, you know, anywhere, any workplace related to us minerals, that every symbol and every everything in fiber being tells me from the outset that that type of behavior is not going to be accepted. So whether it's the first time I make, you know, that smart aleck joke, mm. you know, that's just, that's that little bit disrespectful. And one of my work colleagues goes, whoa, like, like, get, like, like if we have a culture where that type of behavior is never accepted, it's never walked past because it's just so part of how we work together. Yeah. Um, then that I think d- massively decreases your risk when you've got environments where the culture actually sends you a signal that says, you know, it's kind of okay. Mm. Then the risk of actually, and you know, a sort of harassment incident taking place exponentially goes up. Yeah. So for us, it's around making sure we've got all those controls in place. But fundamentally, the, the most pivotal one is continuing to work, you know, on sort of culture. Because that goes back to that we were talking about earlier, which is um, all the, the cues that you get when you come into a workplace basically tell you how to behave. Yeah. And most of them are subtle and they're, they're unspoken. Yeah. You know, so what are those cues? What are those symbols? Uh, and what's what's accelerated? What's celebrated and, and 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 you know and sort of um, really amplified? And what's stomped on really quickly? Mm. And are we actually doing that? So that's a, yeah, kind of a, you can imagine an ongoing conversation. A- absolutely, and I think if, if look, I, my background, I come from a blue collar background, right? And I really understand the type of characters and and the the, the people in that world. But there is an element, of, and there is a definitive. Well, there is a fine line between banter yeah. and harassment. How do you manage that in its in its own right? Um, in when the when someone might make a comment, it's just purely because they're thinking that's part of their relationship. Do you put a stop to that? Do you take away that that you know? I think honestly, honestly the, the the best thing you do is you just have as diverse a group in there as possible because often that banter comes from because. Um, 
it's it's that concept of like you know sort of like you know privilege that you're not even seeing mm. it's often it's mindsets you're not even seeing so if you have everybody that looks alike speaks alike Correct. same gender same background same then that banter for them might feel really normal and mm. they might feel really included yeah. and be completely unaware of how somebody you know from a different demographic is is feeling on the inside with that banter so yeah. i think the best thing to do is actually get more diversity into into yeah. groups we had a fascinating session on friday for wear purple day and we had an amazing um, chap come in, actually from another company. Mm-hmm. Um, and he talked about coming out in that company um, and what it felt like to try and have to hide his identity for so long. And how after he came out, how many of his colleagues came up to him, like really upset, realizing how they'd been making him feel mm. totally unintentionally. Yeah, Great, pe- good people, good at heart. But to them, what was banter to them they, you know, they just they weren't even consciously aware mm. of, uh, you know, of the impact it was having on him um, until afterwards. So I think we've got to be very careful about this mm. idea of. I agree. It's not about becoming PC and you know nobody can you know connect and you know fun. But we always have to think about it through. Of, that might feel like banter to me because that's the world I live in. Because I have just no no I have no yeah. awareness of what well, you're it feels looking like. out through the, your own goggles, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the, the best way to, to to I think to to overcome that is that. You've got a team with a real mix of people with different cultural heritage and orientation and background and life experience and industry experience and gender. And you put all that melting pot in, they'll create a banter that's real for them, for the identity of that group, not for the dominant demographic of that group. Do you put targets on that diversity then? No, we don't. No. No, Again, we had this great debate yesterday with with our investors uh, for for a very purposeful reason. we believe that targets and quotas can inadvertently have an unintended consequence okay. and they can drive the wrong behavior mm-hmm. and they can drive simply the sole objective being to have the number mm. rather than actually I genuinely deeply want to have that diverse group because it's better for my business, it's better for the team, you know, um, uh, you know, irrespective of being the right thing to do. There is a real business, massive business imperative in having mm. that diversity in sort of in teams. So we're really trying to work this from um a sustainable, long-term sort of um systemic approach, yeah. building that inclusive culture. And now what we're doing is having built, I think we've been quite successful in the last couple of years, really, really embedding inclusivity sort of into the business. We're now starting to lift the the, the ante and say, okay, um, now we've got an environment where all types of you know sort of diverse workforce can thrive. Um, we have to now get out and We've got to bring that diverse workforce mm. in. And we're, you know, we're, we're so you almost go poaching in, in the sense that you want to knock on people's doors and say, hey, come work for us, as opposed to putting something on seek and hoping what, hoping for the best? Well, it's a couple of things. So what we've um, we've always done that. We've always been trying to be a little bit kind of proactive about yeah. talent and yeah. sort of out there looking for, sort of, for the best people. Uh, but also it's around, I think the industry has a big hurdle to overcome. Mm. So you say mining industry to a lot of people and you, you know, they don't even think about, you know, sort of coming to work that industry. Yeah. So um, really showcasing, you know, for what a modern mining company is actually like, it's incredibly, you know, innovative, exciting, bringing all of your thinking to sort of have an impact on the world, you know, through changing the technology about how we, you know, mine things like copper, which we need for the future, you know, for our, for, our, for our, you know, the future of the, the world, we need these these minerals, uh, like copper, et cetera. Um, changing the brand and, and, and opening up, the world to a much broader demographic is probably one of the first things you've got to do. Then you have to look at all of your processes, right from how we go out and think, you know, do you use the same recruiter? Do you use the same channels 
Sikh. How do you know that the demographics, the wider demographics that you're trying to, are even on Sikh? Mm. Like, so we've, Correct. so what we're doing now is we're starting to layer in obligations through our process standards, which is we have kind of a tight, loose framework in our mm -hmm. devolved model where we give a huge amount of empowerment and devolved decision making, but within the constraints of things that are just too important to be involved. And we call them process standards mm -hmm. and they're, they're like hardwired into, and every asset and every function has to operate within those process standards. So we are designing into that and we have now a lot of obligations around um, um, really challenging your, um, your, your recruitment channels. Mm -hmm. So how, basically, can you prove to me that you have used a range of recruitment channels to go out and tap into a much broader network of people yeah. in the first place? Then when they've come through, um, how are you thinking about your shortlisting? So what criteria are you using? So show to me, you know, demonstrate that you actually are really, really, again, challenged all the assumptions about who makes it onto your shortlist. That right. shortlist, we have, a, we have an expectation that your shortlist should, re should represent the demographic that you're recruiting from within. So, you know, if you're in part of the world and it's 50% female, then I expect to see 50% on your shortlist. Yeah. Um, if it's got sort of a certain percentage of, um, you know, sort of uh, uh, indigenous Population, I expect to see that on your shortlist. We expect to see, you know, with cultural heritage, all of that. Yeah. So your shortlist should represent the demographic of basically of Australia. Yeah. Um, and it shouldn't just represent the demographic of the current workforce that you've yeah. got. So again, we've woven that in as, a, as an obligation right through to um, uh, we're doing a lot of work with them, with our hiring managers and our recruitment teams around unconscious bias and and interviewing techniques and language and just, just all the practical tools yeah. we can give people uh, to then... So, to then feed through into um, the demographics that we have then in the organization. They were tracking and measuring that. So every week at our executive team meeting, we track um, how many people um, have applied to jobs for us. We look at that through all the demographic splits mm -hmm. and we see how many that's translating into shortlists and into hires. And so we can have a constant view as to whether or not we're starting to shift the dial. Exactly. Um, and uh, so, so like, it's a long way of saying, I think you've got to, do this you've got to do this bottom up yeah and you have to put the obligation into your into your system into your business and then you've got to skill people up and create the environment rather than go and i think it's a bit of a blunt and it's an easy one we could do it tomorrow we could come in tomorrow and say right we're going to have a target of x yeah um, but you can achieve that without actually getting the benefit yeah well i think it's just it's almost a cop out to just put a target on it there is a lot of hard work to that goes into the background. Like yeah. the, the simple thought process that you just said then of having people to uh, really understanding and changing their thought process when recruiting, Yeah. right? Like that in itself is fundamental that you don't, you don't just do that by target. You don't change someone's thought process by saying you need to meet a quota. You change Absolutely. this thought process by removing those unconscious biases, right? And that's 100%. The, I think what you're saying there is really Yeah, and really one of the risks is if, if you if you if I say to you, right, um, without doing any of the other stuff, you know, you've got to hit this quota, you'll hit it because, you know, maybe your bonus is connected yeah, to right. it or, you, or or your future employment's correct connected to it. Will you truly embrace no. Those people, no. will you change the way, will you actually get the benefit? Will you make yeah. this a great experience and a valued yeah. experience for that person? I would suspect probably not. And right. we're hearing a lot of that, you know, the backlash of that sense of, oh, so-and-so got the job just because. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's almost the worst position to put somebody oh, into. I know, so, I've heard that yeah, statement so many times and it just creates a fragmented environment. It does, know? it does. I think, again, I was starting a starting point. I think people set out, people do the best with what they have. I don't mm. think people set out intentionally to yeah. be to be biased. But if you're not even aware that you've got this thing called similarity bias, 
and that you are like neurologically programmed to connect more to somebody that looks like you, sounds like you, has your okay. life experiences. That's how we're wired. Yeah. That's how we survived as tribes That's in the it, past. Absolutely. Just helping people know that and be aware of that. So when they have that feeling of warmth to a certain, you think, oh, it's probably the similarity bias kicking in. So how can I, what's, what structure can I do to try and overcome that? Mm. Giving them tools to sit down and think, okay, how do I think about diversity of thought in my team? You know, we know, and again, we've got the science and the evidence to help, you know, to show people. We know that having different um, diversity sort of in a team impacts on the way the team thinks about and solves problems. And so sitting down and going, right, okay, so what kind of thinkers have I got on my team? What's the diversity of thought on my team? Doing that mapping to know where your gap is to help you when you're going out recruiting. Again, it's just simple tools to help people with conscious and with thought go into that recruitment process yeah. rather than, you know, unintentionally looking around and going, oh, I've got seven people that yeah, just look no, and sound exactly like me. Well, kudos to you and the team for everything you're doing. I am conscious of time. We are, um, we are coming to the close now. Um, again, I just want to say thank you for uh, everything that uh, you oh, and the team pleasure. are doing as Minerals and everything that you shared. I, I didn't even get through half of the questions that I wanted to ask yeah. you. Maybe we can do a part two. I'm just looking at Sharon. Can I, can I just say one thing? Yeah. It's always on my mind. We say, sort of, sort of myself and the team, to me that, that team is the whole of Oz Minerals. Mm, um, it's one thing we've always said, culture does not sit with the people teams. Uh, um, it's something we're actually doing. Oh, it's different in other, yeah. in other companies. It's often seen as like the, the kind of the, domain. Yeah, hundred percent. My team's role is really just to systematize, mm. you know, and create the environment and the system. Yeah, the culture is created by everybody, Everyone and else. so uh, all the things that I've talked about, you know, I would say the there's been that has been a huge organizational wide, you know, kind of journey that Shift. people have been I, on, agreed. and then yeah. things that we're talking about are just, you know, some of the enablers that. You know the teams are like they're there to systematize in. But um, you, you, if you talk to anybody, you meet anybody from Oz, you'll, they'll probably talk exactly as I've talked. Yeah, no doubt about what we're doing. I think um, you know you, you could go in there and say everyone needs to wear a, you know a purple shirt and that'll create a great culture. Not necessarily saying that that's the great the greatest idea. You're like you said, you're removing the bollard so that the culture can be yeah. in that uh, can perform at its highest level. Right, uh, but what it does need is the uptake from everyone to be able to do that. Culture just is; it isn't one. It, it is the the people that you hire. It's their attitude. It's their behaviours. It's their thought process on life. It's their self reflection. It's all the above. Hundred percent. And when we go out and we recruit, we have a concept. Um, we used to call it sort of bar raiser, but it's like how do we raise the bar? Every time we recruit one person in, that person should be somehow coming in and adding something to our culture. Right. So we actually have our. We, we've, I think we've got about 50 people that we call them how we work together coaches mm -hmm. and they all nominate themselves yep. and we help and we help train them and so you can't get you can't get recruited into ours without having an interview with one of the, one of our how we work together coaches Brilliant. and they've got effective veto and so it's it. almost like the culture is now so owned by the people like the, the, the workforce they're quite protective of it mm. and so it's case of if you're going to come in and we make sure that, that that person is completely separate to the hiring area yeah, yeah. so that they've got no vested interest they don't and they don't suffer the pain if that brilliant person doesn't get recruited because they and their sole job is to say is this person going to lift the bar and push us ahead yeah. culturally and if not they don't come in they don't come in at least join us on the bus right yeah in the direction that we're going yeah i love it gonna bring this to a close we do have some really quick fire questions okay. that i do yeah. love asking at the end of every podcast 
Uh, we are big readers here at yeah. Creating Synergy and Synergy IQ. What are you reading right now? I uh, got a book for my birthday from my son mm. and he bought me My Year of Living Vulnerably by Rick Morton. Okay. Yeah, which is I thought quite fascinating that a yeah. 16-year-old bought that yeah. <laughs> for you. So there you go. A that's, Year of Living Vulnerable. Oh, yeah. A, okay. Yeah, it's Good. quite complex uh, PTSD. Okay. Yeah, so go. it's quite we fascinating. put that in the uh, show notes and we can definitely click on that. Yep. I'm interested in that one. Uh, for those uh, who are interested in building high-performing teams, what is a book that you could recommend? Uh, there's tons of awesome books out there written by other companies. One that really powerfully moved me was um, An Everyone Culture by okay. Bob Keegan and Lisa Leahy. Okay. That talks more to those principles of that, those, that's, that, that concept of how do you free up people to almost like just drop that that front that they're putting on yeah. and let everyone kind of come into the culture. So that, that that book blew my mind when I read it. Okay. The had, Everyone Culture. It's called An Everyone Culture. An Everyone Yeah, culture. by Robert Keegan, Bob Keegan and Lisa Leahy. Um, so if you ever want to get into that yeah, airspace of... written a few books, hasn't she? Yeah. Yeah. So it's that whole thing of, of how do you become deliberately developmental as an organization? Um, no, okay. Yeah. So oh, that's an awesome read. What other podcasts do you listen to other than the Creating Synergy podcast, obviously? So this is why I'm a bit of a dinosaur. So oh, I actually no. don't listen to. No, okay. So busy with kids and work, and yeah. um, and I'm, I have to. I'm a very. Um, I'm a reader. Yeah. Okay. So I. I what do you book or read? Read. Read. Actually, well, my read. my son's finally managed to get me convinced to read on a Kindle. Well, okay. that, that's only recent, but um, how do you find that? I struggle. The Kindle only just from a practical point of view. I want a book really quickly now. Yeah. I'll, I'll, and I don't want to wait. You can get it. Yeah, but, that's fair. Yeah, but other than that, I have to. I'm a little bit. I just. I love curling up on a sofa or sitting in the sun and with a book. Yeah. So I, I love reading. I highlight and write notes. So yeah. that's why the Kindle doesn't. Like you, I know you can highlight on a Kindle, but you can't write notes. So yeah. maybe that's the next. Thing Possibly, for... but to me, and to me, it's just it's, I love turning the yeah. pages yeah. and the, and the oh, yeah. feel of a book, and... the smell of a book. Yeah, yeah, book. yeah, hundred percent. All right, some quirky ones. If you could invite three people for dinner, who would they be? You know, I thought this is going to sound a bit late. I think it's influenced by the whole pandemic thing. It actually would be my dad, my brother, and my sister because they're in Ireland okay. and I haven't seen them since December 2019. So yeah. I know it's probably not very no, that is... mind-blowing, but I was no, actually that's... thinking about that question. I thought right now the three people I really want most to dinner probably is... My is, family. Yeah. I've got a brother in Melbourne and I've... Thank God I've been able to see him a couple of times mm. um, in so between lockdowns. <laughs> so, yeah, so Brendan, if you're listening, I do love you. But, yeah, but you don't my, make the cut this time. <laughs> you don't make the cut. Um, because, I, because, yeah, I have actually managed to see him yeah. physically. But, um, yeah, just completely cut off from my other brother and sister and my dad back in Ireland. So yeah, that's, that's lovely. Well, fingers crossed we can get back to, a, you know, a world where he's connected again physically as opposed to virtually. Yeah. Um, what's some of the best advice you've ever received? Um, I had some great advice by somebody in at one of my team um, that I worked with back in line in my early days and I was struggling with going part-time as a working mom and whole sense of achievement and she said you've got to recreate your definition of achievement and it was like that first kind of penny drop of like wow like I'm feeling bad because I'm defining achievement through like almost like external norms mm. and it was that one bit of advice to sort of kind of go actually get in the driving seat like Define it for you right now, what achievement looks like, and then measure yourself against it um, yeah. was really quite a powerful bit of advice. That is amazing. Because quite often we're yeah, influenced I'm stuck in by a world those. Of, yeah, I'm not really understanding what achievement looks like. I think I'm constantly striving. Every time I achieve, I then go for the next thing and go for the next thing. And yeah. When I look back, I think it was probably the early genesis of me starting to notice some of the assumptions I was holding and mm. realizing I was subject to narratives I was holding in my head. Yeah. And now, kind of now, I've 
spend a lot of time like, trying to like notice those narratives and try and not be subject to them anymore. But um, yeah, I hadn't realized how much I was anchored in it. And somebody just sort of that wise bit of advice. And that person I actually managed to recruit into my team to come oh, work with us at Oz. So. <laughs> Excellent. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, time machine if we had access yeah. to a time machine where would you I go I know this again this is going to sound a bit sort of lame but I would actually go right back to um, I'd go back to the last time I had the whole family together back in Ireland so mm. um, we had a, my, my brother's in Melbourne yeah. and my mom passed away a little while ago and we had a barbecue in Ireland where all the siblings you know and our partners and our kids and my mom and dad and then all my aunts and uncles and cousins that I grew up with and that was the last time that the whole family was was all together so I would probably Probably, I think it's because your sense of loss of oh, family yeah, in during this sort of pandemic era. So I was thinking of that just question, the warmth, thinking the fun, the laughs, the yeah, the yeah. So if I could, <laughs> if I could just do a time machine, I'd go right back to that moment in time in our back garden in Dublin. I think it was probably about seven years ago. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. If you could have one superhero power, what could, what would it be? It would be, I think, to wave a magic wand and have everybody really be able to take other. People, not just take but seek other people's perspectives mm. that thing about actually if I really I think all the wars that we're fighting at the moment they all come from the view of like my view of the world and imposing it on others and yeah. through human history I thought God imagine if if everybody could sort of stop and pause and go I wonder what the world looks like from your shoes yeah and I could take your I could actually seek and take your perspective would have oh. saved ourselves an awful lot of an awful lot of pain yes a magic wand Yep, we need it in the world. And last but not least, you are a mother, so yep. you would have had a bad joke at some oh point. Oh, my God. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right, so I am the world's worst. I, mean, I think everything's because I'm Irish. I can crack jokes. I'm the world's worst. I can't sing and I can't tell jokes. I didn't so want to bring the Irish thing I, in, but there's got to be a joke floating oh, around. Oh, I totally. I, I, fail, <laughs> I fail the pub test every time. I've already got one joke, and it's my brother wrote it. We were kids. He wrote it for a competition, and he... The Rice Krispies, you call them Rice Bubbles here? We call yes, them Rice Krispies. Rice Bubbles, yes. And he wrote this joke and it won and it got printed on the back of the Rice Krispies box and we thought he was like a superstar. Yeah. And it's the only, well, joke, in my eyes, it's the only joke I can ever remember, which is, where do generals hide their armies? Where? Up their sleeves. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's the only joke I can ever remember because brilliant. I still remember reading it on the back of the yeah. Rice Krispies box and we were so excited. We were about like... Nine or ten, it or something. What an achievement! Like that's yeah. literally got to be in his resume. That yes, one. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Forget the fact he's an engineer and oh, yeah, yeah, he's a, he, he wrote a joke that got made the back of the rice bubbles box. So I love it. That's Absolutely. my that's my that's my uh, that's my uh, lame joke. Thank you so much for your time today, Fiona. Oh, it's my been, pleasure. It's been amazing. It's been it's been deep. We've learned so much about you and what you where you've come from, what you've done, and also what uh, Oz and the team are, are doing. Um, and, and thank you for, for you and the team in leading the way and really thinking about, you know, all things diversity, inclusion, um, inclusivity, all the above. Um, it, it is really, really amazing to hear that uh, a company like that who is doing some, you know, doing some great things uh, is also thinking very, very clearly about the people and what and, and, and gaining the best from their people. So thanks. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Not a worry. Thank you, guys. We'll catch you next time. Thank you once again for joining us here at Creating Synergy. It's been great spending this time with you. Please jump on to the Synergy IQ Facebook and LinkedIn page where the discussion continues after the show. Join our mailing list so you'll know what's happening next at synergyiq.com.au. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And if you really enjoyed it, please share it with your friends.